Welcome to Blindspot, an audio podcast series about forensic science and the role forensic experts play in our judicial system. The name Blindspot comes from the fact that forensic experts can see and hear what laypersons cannot. Forensic experts reveal the blind spot in court using their experience and expertise as forensic scientists. Hello, all, and welcome to this episode of Blind Spot. My name is Allison Page, and I am the marketing director at Primo Forensics. Both Ed and Michael Primo are here with me today, the owners and forensic experts behind the company. Ed, Michael, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you. Most great welcome. idea. I like this. <laughs> this is this is the first time we've ever done it something is. like this. It Father is. and son podcast. I like it. Very right. exciting. Well, 2020 is now behind us, thankfully. But I thought we could take this opportunity to look back at what the year brought to our family-owned small business, challenges, achievements, and what we can expect from 2021. What do you guys think? Sure was a challenging year, wouldn't you say? Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't fun at all. <laughs> challenging is the. I don't know anybody who, who would say that it wasn't a challenging yeah. year, but I think um, one of my takeaways, <clears throat> one of my takeaways of the year is how organized we got when COVID first hit, because we we all hung in there as long as we could, and then the governor shut our state down, and we found ourselves working remotely, which is the first time I've ever seen any type of a forensic lab operate. And you and Alex really stepped up to the plate with the technology and accessing the computers remotely. And I don't think we missed a beat. We met all our deadlines and we kept things going. And what was the program you used to help us interface to the computers? LogMeIn. Log we use LogMeIn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was a, a pretty genius move. And it kept us in business through those months while the state was shut down. What you find challenging about all of that from a technical perspective? This list would come in handy one day. Through throughout COVID, I made a list of all of the all of the kind of mini successes that we had that helped us to keep going on the trajectory that we wanted to, because before COVID, we were in this expedited growth phase where we were rapidly gaining new customers. We were trying to figure out how to allocate funds to continue growth, and then business kind of stopped, which most like everybody's businesses did when the shutdown happened, I think mostly because the world was just kind of in shock and everything just got put on pause, and, and business did the same, the same thing. So to your point, we, yeah, we, we definitely got organized. We definitely um, scheduled a lot more. The calendar was very, very strict because time became a scarcity because with COVID, everything had to be done. Longer tasks, there was more stuff to always do. Um, you know, you didn't grocery shop the same way. From an ownership perspective, I think we both had a lot of adjustment to make to kind of reevaluate the priorities to help keep the team on track, which was probably the biggest challenge was, okay, now we're all being sent into our homes and we all learned, okay, we can work virtually. And you had a, a huge adjustment to using more software to do sales and to do your job virtually. Because I think as owners, we're both very used to managing on our feet. You know, so we walk office to office, we pick up the phone more, 
Um, we're checking in more in person and, and virtually you couldn't really do that as much. Meetings had to get scheduled. Um, we started using a texting application through Microsoft Teams. So there was there was more detail-oriented things that needed to be done that were normal tasks combined with the need to automate certain things. Um, so early on, I was reading a lot of uh, Harvard Business Journals because they were one of the only uh, thought leaders in, in COVID stuff and, and also keeping um, not only the tech on track, but our minds as as workers so that we were, you know, we were we were still in a healthy workspace in our heads, working from home, having an increased stress level, um, you know, fear of, of what was going on outdoors. And then once we kind of got our bearings set, then we we started to do business normally and kind of adopt or adapt to the the new style of of working from home environment. So from a management perspective, do you see any of the tools or resources that you utilized within the quarantine few months that we had? Do you see any of those changes here to stay um, moving into, you know, now that we're back in the office and working slightly more normally, but do you see any of those tools or management styles being a permanent fixture within our business? I've watched you become a better leader. You've taken over a lot of the day-to-day -day operations and it's streamlined my thoughts and time so that I could focus on following up with the leads that we get every day, as well as some of the old leads that we never really followed up with before, as well as some of the past clients post investigation follow-up. And I've never really been able to do that, but somehow I have more time in my day. So I'm convinced kicking and screaming into learning all of these software programs, I am way more productive than I was before. And that's a fact. He's my dad. He's supposed to give me compliments <laughs> throughout the interview. He's, that's going to be a theme because he's, because he's proud. Um, yeah, I agree. I think I agree with the, with the, that point that our efficiency became our number one priority, especially working from home where distractions are their highest. Um, I remember reading something like you can't be you can't micromanage your team and be hyper fixated on their working hours and what they're doing throughout the day because working from home means they're working sun up to sundown. They don't leave work like they used to, where they would, you know, they'd travel home at five o'clock and work got shut off. Right. That when change you're at of home, environment. Like you yeah. are right now, you're also working mm -hmm. from the moment you open your eyes to the moment you go to sleep because those thoughts are just swimming around in your head um, because you're working environment, your living environment. So, um, to your question, I think, I feel like businesses learned this new way of doing business and ultimately it started saving them money. This new way of thinking about in ensuring that productivity and efficiency, i.e. cost, was at the top of the list. They, I mean, even if COVID goes away, businesses aren't going to go back to the way that they were doing it. They also can't now that they've entered this new technical world much like the courts did with zoom um, that's not something that you know they were forced to do that and i don't i don't feel that that's going to go away now because it works i mean this is one of the negative points to the way we testify now we may not be 
flown across the country to testify any longer because they learned that we could do Zoom and that was an easy way to do it. But in a lot of cases, in certain types of trials, we are really not needed, but a very big want to have a body in the room to be able to explain these things. It's a more interactive human to human feel if the jury's in the room. I agree with that. I think um, that's true. We're going to be doing more remote testimony, but there's still going to be those cases that require in-person testimony because as both of these lawyers, clients that we have currently, we're waiting for murder trials coming up in February, want me in the room and want the jury in the room. And I've seen some photographs of how they've set up courtrooms now. There's plastic around everybody and there's shields, just like when you walk in the convenience store. Um, I think that's here to stay. I don't I don't see them taking that down at this point. You know, and I'm not a big news watcher, but today something that hit me right between the eyes is there's all these different variations and strains of this virus now that everybody's concerned about. And I'm going to continue to ignore that and keep working from home until somebody waves the white flag and then I'll come out. But um, and that's a that's a great point, because for individuals that are either high at risk or or in fear or just sheer uncomfortable, I mean, a lot of the biggest companies still haven't gone back. And and that is necessary technology that we'll have to keep using to stay connected to you, like, you know, because you're working from home still right now. Um, and that opens a whole door of problems. I mean, we just had a case a couple of weeks ago about a deposition on Zoom and the deponent was looking at notes as we could see the reflection in their glasses. And the attorney was very concerned because when the deponent was being questioned about it, he denied it. So I think there's a whole new activity coming up with testifying on Zoom to be able to make sure people are understanding that they're under oath and the consequences of anything that they should say under oath that's not forthcoming and truthful. So, yeah, we've, we've, we're not done with the challenges, but I think we've done a darn good job of morphing this company into what it is today. And it's a stronger muscle than it was before COVID. There's no doubt. There's a famous book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, that I was reading before COVID and started reading again that talks about uh, a deeper level, a more efficient, intimate level of work than the instant gratification world that we live in where you, you can do a task and you don't actually get the full value of that task back because that's how our society's minds, our culture of, of minds, the millennials and under have kind of grown into this. Well, if I just click a button, it's easy. And then I get that gratification back we lost that touch with doing tasks at at length to really get that return back, the value back on those tasks. So this, this book kind of describes how in today's society with everything that uses tech, the only way to get that value back out of tasks that you do is through intimate interaction with the software. And to your point, I, I think that's really what we began to do as well when we started working from home is figuring out every square inch of Microsoft Teams and how it can help us stay organized and keep files in certain places and communicate and augment tasks, have meetings. Um, Clio, you know, our, our CRM, making sure that we, we used every square inch of it and got intimate with it to help us do, you know, the day-to-day -day tasks, Adobe, et cetera. Um, so for those of you that haven't read Deep Work, we would highly 
recommend it. It's a it's a complicated read, but some of the neuroscience behind um, work in our workforce today is is really really compelling. I, I heard Joe Rogan do that a couple times. <laughs> Shout out to you, Mr. Rogan. We are avid avid listeners and fans. If you ever come across our podcast, we would be uh, delighted if you're listening. Um, awesome, awesome Love podcast. To have you as a guest. Shout out to Joe Rogan. Yeah, if we could get you as a guest, come on down. He's going to watch you after your big debut on broadcast oh, television not, in January. Oh, we can talk about that, right? We can review Yeah, that, no, review it's coming up. Viewers. I think Allison's up. about to ask us that question. Okay. Well, I'm I'm going to preface into something else, but you guys already touched on it slightly transitioning into your roles as forensic experts. How would you say the year has changed the way you operate with investigations or serving as uh, expert witnesses? How has, how has the year morphed the way that you normally participate in investigations and cases? That's a great question. We could continue our discussion. I think what's really changed more than anything is our lack of contact with people. I've had a couple cases where attorneys wanted me to get together and come visit somebody in prison or meet and get some printed materials they wanted me to review to provide opinions on. And that's all come to a screeching halt because we're being careful. We've got COVID protocols here at the office that Michael wrote early on, and we've been following them. And I am really pleased to say that we're all good. We're all, nobody's been sick. You know, it's a successful process that we're doing. And I think the way to mess up any successful process is to change it. If it's working, you know, we're going to not fix it. You're going to leave it alone because it's not broke. So that's been a big challenge. We, we did have one maybe two evidence recoveries. I know you flew out to Iowa on a case and we had another evidence recovery on the west side of Michigan. But other than that, I think things are just kind of at a, I don't want to say a screeching halt, but things are on hold right now. And we're waiting for that green light because I have a feeling once that hits and the courts are all open again, we're going to really start to see some activity again. Yeah, everything everything is is slow. It's a It's a slow process. For scheduling, it's a it's a slow process for billing, it's a slow process for collecting retainers from some clients. Uh, when it you know, like especially the ones that are insurance companies, those are taking a little bit longer than they used to, most likely because everything is just it's slower. Um, and it it definitely depends on uh, depends on the jurisdiction. So it is nice that we work in so many different jurisdictions throughout the country. Um, because all of that kind of flexes from state to state, but um, yeah, the, we did the case in Iowa where we had to uh, we flew out to investigate uh, some audio equipment, um, and although that general framework was pretty much the same, there was more more challenges. There were there, there were just more challenges to doing a site inspection, an evidence recovery, a, a, a flying to a different location. Um, one pro would be that the, the airports were a little more smooth. Um, they don't, they didn't think they checked my ID. They just kind of confirmed, uh, from the boarding pass and you walked right through, uh, lines were definitely shorter. Uh, you know, of course, everyone's being safe and wearing masks and, you know, Delta shout out to Delta has done a fantastic job at keeping their, 
their guests safe on the flights and doing everything that they can with masks and uh, HEPA filtration systems in the planes and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, when we got to Iowa, uh, so like in Cedar Rapids, there were there were limited rideshare availability, uh, Uber, Lyft, whatever, your, your, pick your poison. Um, and being able to get around was a little bit more difficult uh, because not as many people were on the road. There was no public transportation, uh, but everyone was still being, you know, safe. We were still able to get rides. It just took a little bit longer. Uh, and then, of course, as, as Dad mentioned earlier, but uh, testifying has obviously become a little bit more of a challenge uh, with Zoom, although there are a lot of benefits uh, COVID-wise to doing Zoom. From a testimony perspective, it's a lot harder to prep uh, with a client over the phone or over Zoom. And then in this last case where I testified a couple weeks ago, they call you, you know, in some cases, five minutes before you need to be on or even 30 seconds and say, look, the judge wants you right this second or he doesn't want you at all. And then you got to you got to jump on your computer and get in. So, you you know, you you may not be totally mentally in the space you need to be prepared wise to to, to provide the most effective testimony. Um, and then, of course, it's a little strange being up on a monitor looking down at the court. There's no one in the court except, you know, the necessary litigators and the judge. Um, so it's it's just a different kind of environment that we're not used to. So your brain kind of has to get acclimated to that. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, I think a lot of litigators would argue, and even experts, that being in person is more effective. It's it's most effective when when trying to explain something um, because the connection is less less digital. Um, yeah, I agree. It's it's so important to be in the same room when you're testifying. Because you make eye contact with the jurors and with the judge, with the attorneys. And it's so difficult to do that because we're basically staring at a TV screen. There's nobody's eyes to to make contact with. So I haven't testified yet. I've done a few interviews, but um, I know you and I have talked about that experience that you had testifying. And it's it's very challenging to communicate and make sure that you're getting your point across and that the trier effect understands because you can't see any body language. So it's it's a challenge, all right. In, investigations haven't shifted much. Investigations have always been computer done for the most part. A lot of the software and, and tools and stuff like that. Um, we've just gotten more strict with scheduling. So COVID has kind of blessed us in a lot of ways from that aspect, um, especially with software. I have not had one issue with any software company that we work with with either troubleshooting, technical difficulties, sales, um, general process, workflow updates, et cetera. Every single software company, Clio, uh, Microsoft, Adobe, GoCanva, Amped, Verizon, all of these different companies that help, they're little pieces of how we do everything in the computer, how we, how we do our investigations, um, has, has only wanted to come alongside us and help uh, to to make sure that we do our 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 processes and do business best, um, especially when it's like you know Isotope, when we need another license for something, if we got to activate another computer for you know one of our technicians at home that needs a machine to to do something, bam, they issue five more licenses, no questions asked, we don't have to pay for them. Um, so yeah, all of our all of our tools, all of the the developers for the tools have been really really helpful. Um, all of our investigations get scheduled. We've got deadlines for when to, to provide clients work products, communication. But even still, with those deadlines, um, 
our clients' deadlines are also flexible to to a to a point. So you know, if we don't finish a report exactly at that hour, and we may have another day or two because the courts are a little bit more flexible uh, to make sure that we get the best possible uh, product. So, so again, both of you hit on my next point, my next question, I should say, the fact that <clears throat> it's been swirling around for months as to whether COVID nineteen will fundamentally transform the legal industry as we know it. So from teleworking, live streaming, shifting operations to the cloud, do you think some of these changes are here to stay? And do you both find negatives or positives to those shifts? It's interesting. Audrey and I attended a Detroit Bar Association function early this year. And the big announcement was e-discovery. And it's so ironic how we've since COVID become a very electronic industry. I think that's here to stay. Um, we've taken some great measures to assure security. We share password protected drives. We use secure protocols to transfer evidence. Uh, we recently switched from Zoom to WebEx because it's a more secure platform to meet on. You know, what would happen if somebody from the other side of a litigation spied on us or, you know, tapped into one of our Zoom calls. And Zoom just isn't as secure of a protocol, but that's another podcast. So that's certainly one thing that I think is here to stay. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, and it, it kind of already has changed the legal force permanently, um, especially with attorneys that and law firms that either went sole proprietor or realize that they didn't need overhead. They didn't need an office. I mean, a lot of, I think there was a statistic early on, like most attorneys collect 30% of the cases that they work on. And then that number shot up when they started working from home or went on to work on by themselves to now 70%. So they collect 70% of it because of the overhead that was no longer required. So not having an office space because they were working from home. So in the legal industry, that's how that's how a lot of even our clients that we work with uh, teleconference with us is from their homes. So it 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 definitely has changed the way that we think about things that that are necessary because now four walls aren't. You can work anywhere with the tools in an internet connection. Um, and then definitely the 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 ability to testify virtually, to interact virtually, um, and now like you mentioned with e-discovery, collecting evidence and and parsing through it uh, for discovery um, using e-discovery all that all that stuff has made permanent I think permanent changes yeah I can I'm sure we've you know we found some major efficiencies throughout the last several months of being quarantined and then working from home and but I do think as a team we find, a lot of efficiencies here working in the office, you know, having the opportunity to work alongside each other, having the face-to-face -face conversations without having to schedule them on a calendar is always helpful. Absolutely. 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 All right. I, last question. Before we close out this episode of Blind Spot, I'd like to end on a high note and take a look back at a few of the achievements that Primo Forensics has made this year. And both of you touched on it again. Um, what can our listeners expect to see from us in 2021? What have, what have been the shining achievements of 2020 and how do they um, lead us into the new year? 
Well, I did a, a an analysis of the John Bonet Ramsey nine one one call. It's going to be featured on twenty twenty in the early January. No pun intended. What are the highlights of twenty right, twenty? Yeah. He was on twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> and Michael, you've got an interesting case that came in for the History Channel. The proof is out there, and you ended up shooting twenty two episodes in one afternoon. Mm-hmm. Looking at 22 different videos, that was a pretty amazing assignment and, yeah, and great accomplishment. One. Yep, that was fun. And they reached out to you before the first season even aired, asking you to do a second season. So that's a that's a good sign the network likes that show. Yeah, occasionally those are those are fun investigations, but also very challenging because they force you to remain as unbiased as you can. Um, they force you to try to maintain your investigative perspective as an expert in a different setting for television is not the same as for court, but you have to remain in that same role to stay as unbiased as possible. Otherwise you look like someone that's just hired for the media. And unfortunately the media, no matter what television network it is, whether it's, it's A&E travel channel discovery, and we've worked for just about them all, even our local networks you've done, probably a dozen local network uh, spots over the years on different cases. Um, They always try to push you just a little bit further than where you can stop, where you feel comfortable stopping. They always try to bend it just a little bit, say, look, you know, could you push the, could you say that? And you're like, really? I can't say that. Well, what can you say? You know, they always kind of flirt with danger in that aspect because it's TV, right? TV is not always forensics. That's, you know, the forensic files and stuff, they feature forensics, but television is all about the the glamour and the, the bells and whistles. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of pressure to try to drift out of our lane, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why we vet each other while we're being interviewed. I sat in through your interviews, and you sat through mine. And yeah, every 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 single thing we, every single statement, whether it's a report, whether it's a, a television spot, um, even prepping before we get on the stand, we. Uh, peer review each other. We make sure that one of the other one is not going to step out of bounds and say something, which is one of the many benefits to being a father, son, or even a partnership-based team, because I'm sure you can tell the viewers all about how you were doing this by yourself uh, for many years before you had another body helping. Which, I don't even want to think about it. Which baffles me. That just, that blows my mind that you did that for so many years by Challenge. yourself. Um, why don't you tell tell us about redaction? Let's let's talk a little bit about that. Another big thing coming up this year is we've we've decided to take on redaction assignments uh, for new and existing clients, and that's basically the process of removing images and sound per instructions from the client from a piece of video evidence that's usually a freedom of information requested recording. So we we've got redactions now. Redactions is a new uh, a new vertical that kind of came out of the out of left field that we didn't even see as a, a business activity. Why don't, we, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Well, it's interesting because a couple of people reached out to us and asked us if we could help. Um, you had that one medical one a couple of years ago that was an absolute nightmare. So I think part of not recognize it as a necessary business activity came out of the amount of work involved, but you did a great job of building a redaction department and and getting it off the ground. And we've already delivered several cases of redaction. We're working for some government agencies and some police departments. 
And even uh, we've even received some inquiries from some attorneys that are trying to get video released, and they've been uh, deemed responsible to pay or compensate for the redaction by the court. So it's coming in many different ways, not just the traditional way of being assigned by somebody in charge of freedom of information, but we certainly are receiving quite a bit of that as well. And and yeah, the redaction investigations, like you said, were something that we didn't really do a lot of in previous years, mostly because the ones that we received from medical malpractice lawsuits and things like that um, weren't something that the vendor or the client could do in-house. And a lot of agencies have some of those capabilities to redact, but there are some like 24 hours of video where uh, 20 different patients need to be redacted from the, from the recording is just a very large uh, investigation that has to be subcontracted out, which is something that we're trained to do. But it, redaction is really not a forensic process. It's it's not something that requires the same investigative uh, process to to complete that assignment. Um, it's more of like a like almost like a video production process. There there is a forensic best practices to it. SWIGD has and that scientific working group on digital evidence has has generated a best practice that agencies must be in compliance with. Um, or at least are recommended to be in compliance with to redact. But I, th- but I feel what, what started to happen, and this is probably to go alongside of the COVID trends, was there began to become a distrust in law enforcement. The relationship between the general public and LE has become damaged to the point where they don't trust one another. And it's slowly been boiling over the years. And we see that, and we can speak to that, because of all of the evidence that we see. I mean, we analyze these recordings literally every single day. And I know that's a sensitive subject to, to some listeners out there, but it's, it's the truth. There, there is um, there's something wrong with that relationship, with that dynamic. 70 years ago, you know, back in the 1950s, you got stopped by a police officer. You weren't, you weren't afraid of being shot. That wasn't, that wasn't on anyone's radar. And, and, and that, is something that's kind of come to fruition because of how much violence and how everyone's so scared um, and, and which forces law enforcement officers to have to use deadly force. Uh, so in the, in, the, in the system of, so in the case of like BWC, body-worn cameras, um, now so many agencies are using them, we're actually hearing more and more that certain jurisdictions are requiring because of the racial injustices or the systemic racism that's kind of going on in the background, what the media is kind of bringing to light, um, the general public is demanding that this video content, this evidence, the, the, all of the investigative materials that LE use be turned over, be presented under FOIA. And it never had to be that way, especially with officer-involved shootings. So behind the scenes, more and more agencies are having to turn over video evidence so there's more of it that needs to be Redacted, there's a, and there's that, a ton of it. There's, there's a ton of it, and we're getting we're getting inquiries um, in the hundreds of hours to process these these recordings. And a lot of agencies just don't have the training, they don't have the tools, they don't have the manpower, especially when Ellie is being defunded, especially now. So um, we're seeing that as an opportunity for our agency to leverage all of the best practices that we already employ with with forensics, uh, uh, integrity of evidence, preservation. You know all of those things that we we take into account when we're doing cases with our with our credentials and all of the training we have to also assist these agencies and it's not just LE it's it's civil cases 
um, its attorney general's office uh, to be able to redact these recordings so that the trier of fact and the general public can make determinations from them. Um, so we see that as a uh, a new uh, division of Primo Forensics that is going to grow very rapidly alongside of the audio, video, and image forensics. Excellent. 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 <laughs> this is fun. We should do this more often where we, where we babble. We talk about our stuff. We talk about our stuff. We don't talk about our stuff very often. Do we? <clears throat> no. Yeah, we well, since this is the first episode that I have both of you here, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Anything else you want to touch on before we close out this episode? I think there's going to be a huge growth in digital media forensics coming up. There's more body-worn footage that needs to be analyzed and assessed and authenticated and enhanced. There's more people recording conversations. There's more ring doorbell cameras. It's just expanding. It's not contracting. So anybody who's listening and feels that they have the talent to be in this industry, I think you should reach out to Michael or I. Um, anybody listening with any questions about a case that they might have, attorneys listening, they have some questions about how to admit a piece of evidence into court or litigation, reach out to us. We, we really want to help. And um, we're always available. When you call us, you'll speak to an expert. You won't speak to a telemarketer or somebody trying to sell you something. We like to analyze our clients' needs and make sure that we know how we can help before we engage in any kind of investigation. Yep. And uh, above all else, I mean, this is a business, but we don't get paid more to win. We don't get paid more because an attorney wants to offer us more money. We have fixed costs for doing business. Um, we do collect a paycheck. We get a paycheck after the staff gets paid. Our overhead costs are satisfied. We pay off a little debt because the Amex is pretty mad at us right now. Um, but above all else, our our priority in, in our day-to-day -day is to seek the truth. And, and like you said, there is a lot of, there's a surplus of digital evidence being produced. There's a surplus of digital evidence being produced to court. And there are a lot of misunderstandings, mishandlings, manipulation. There's a lot going on in the digital world that either tries to uh, hide the truth or, or changes certain things about the evidence to misrepresent the truth. And our job as, as experts, as analysts, as technicians, as whatever you want to call us, is to interpret that digitally and explain it in a simple or an easy uh, or to explain to explain it in a simple understanding for the people that need to make the determinations uh, the, the 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 departments the courts the companies the private citizens the attorneys all the different walks of investigative life they're the ones that make the decisions we just interpret the data so yeah, our, our phones are always open or our text platforms or our email or whatever the communication preference is these days. Well, we certainly have a lot to look forward to as we get 2021 rolling. Thank you both for joining me. I think it's safe to say we'll be trying this style of podcast episodes again. Um, 
And thank you to all of our listeners for joining in. And if any of our listeners have thoughts on what they'd like to hear from our experts in future podcast episodes, uh, we are all ears. Please reach out to us at info, I-N-F-O at primocompanies.com, P-R-I-M-E-A-U-C-O-M-P-A-N-I-E-S.com. Thank you so much.